All right, I want to welcome everyone for being uh, with us today to celebrate the resurrection at this 6 o'clock service. So glad that you're here. And as we begin, I feel compelled to repeat that Easter tradition of saying, He is risen, and then having you repeat, He is risen indeed. And so we're going to do that. I'll say it, and then I need your loud and strong participation. Here we go. He is risen. Hey, somebody say amen to that this afternoon. All right. This is the final message in a brief uh, Easter series called The Road to Easter. We've talked about the road to Jerusalem, and we focused on Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. Last night, we gathered to worship for a Good Friday service, and we talked about the Via Doloroso, which is a Latin phrase literally translated that means the way of suffering or the road of suffering, the, the steps Jesus took on the way to the cross. Each one of those messages obviously were focused on a specific event that happened in the days leading up to the resurrection. But as we gather today, we're going to celebrate the truth that Jesus has risen from the dead. We're going to look at Luke chapter 24 to do that. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 24 and just hold that ready for a few minutes. Over a century ago, a man named Guy Thorne published a best-selling novel called When It Was Dark, The Story of a Great conspiracy. The story involves a wealthy and powerful man named Constantine Schaub, who was a well-known adversary of Christianity. And more than anything else, he wanted to destroy the Christian faith by disproving the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. As a result, this is the storyline, he takes advantage of the dire financial condition of an English biblical expert named Sir Robert Llewellyn and coerces him into planting a fake inscription inside of an ancient tomb just outside of Jerusalem. The inscription is supposed to have been written by Joseph of Arimathea, who along with a man named Nicodemus took Jesus's body off of the cross after he had died and placed it in a tomb belonging to him. But according to the storyline of this novel, Shab and Llewellyn conspired to create a story where Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus somehow removed Jesus' body from that original tomb and placed it in a second tomb. And inside that second tomb, there was the inscription supposedly written by Joseph Arimathea that read like this, Here lies Jesus of Nazareth, the great and good teacher. We secreted his body away in order to place him beyond the reach and the rage of his enemies. He was the best of men. May he rest in peace. And along with the inscription, they also placed in that tomb the remains of a body of someone who had obviously died as the result of crucifixion. Well, the novel goes on from there and describes the great level of moral decline that fell upon the world because of the absence now of the Christian faith. Churches shut down, missionaries returned from foreign lands, every aspect of Christian charity and Christian benevolence came to a halt. Not long after that novel's publication, the Bishop of London preached about the book and he called it in his message, a remarkable work of fiction. And he said it depicts how the world would be if the resurrection were proved to be a gigantic fraud. He said, you feel the darkness creeping around the world. 
Crime and violence increase in every part of the world, and you see darkness settling down on the human spirit. There have always been people who have tried to disprove the resurrection. You may or may not remember back in 2007 during the construction of a housing project, a tomb was found in Jerusalem that contained the remains of several people. One man was identified in the tomb as Jesus, son of Joseph. And there were two women whose remains were identified, both named Mary. That seemed like an extraordinary coincidence. But the truth is, these were common names in first century Palestine. In fact, I read this past week that in Jesus' day in that region, one out of every five women were named Mary. Joseph was the second most common name among men, and Jesus was the sixth most common name among men. And there have actually been several first century tombs that have been uncovered with the remains of someone who was named Jesus. So this particular story, or discovery rather, wasn't a first. Still, the people who were involved in this specific project came to the conclusion that the bones in that tomb were the bones of Jesus of Nazareth, his mother Mary, and his wife, Mary Magdalene, and their son named Judah. Now, if you're familiar with the book, The Da Vinci Code, or you saw the movie, The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown, you know this idea or this theory that Jesus was actually married to Mary Magdalene and they had a child together is not something that's new. I even preached a sermon series, an entire sermon series on this all the way back in 2006. It was called The Da Vinci Deception. I did that when the movie was released in the theaters so that I could talk about those lies. But there were a lot of people who became fascinated with the discovery of this Jesus son of Joseph tomb, including a man named James Cameron. You may or may not recognize that name, but he was the director of the blockbuster film Titanic, along with other movies. And so he threw his money toward the development of a documentary that was called The Lost Tomb of Jesus that detailed the find along with their people behind it, their wishes in terms of what you took from the documentary. It was aired on the Discovery Channel in March of 2007, and over 4 million people tuned in. There was a book that accompanied the documentary that became eventually a New York Times bestseller. But no one in the academic community even took this find seriously. Several of the experts who were interviewed for the documentary ended up disputing the way their comments and their opinions were represented Many archaeologists and ancient text scholars refuted much of what appeared. And from a scientific standpoint, again, this discovery was never taken seriously. But still, it's an amazing story to someone who desperately wants to prove that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead never happened. And if that were somehow proved, it would change the entire course of history because the Christian faith, our faith is built on the truth that Jesus rose from the dead. It is the essential truth for our faith because it proves that Jesus is who he said he was and he did what he said he would do. The apostle Paul captured that truth, the importance of the resurrection when he wrote these words in Romans chapter 1 and verse 4. He said, and he was shown to be the son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
Friends, without the resurrection, Jesus would be nothing more than what many people already believe that he is, a good man, a moral man, a good teacher, a good example, and on and on and on. And the Christian faith that we cling to would be nothing more than another false religion. And so, as we gather today to celebrate the resurrection, I want to use a familiar post-resurrection appearance of Jesus to reinforce how each and every one of us can really genuinely own our belief in the truth that Jesus rose from the dead, regardless of how many people might come along and try to disprove it and say it's not true. And that takes us to Luke chapter 24. And so, friends, if you've got your Bibles open there and you're able tonight, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of the Scripture. Now, it's a little bit of a longer text than what we normally look at, but I'm going to start in verse 13, and we're going to read down through verse 35. You follow along as I read. And I'll try not to mess it up as badly as I did at the 4 o'clock service. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, this is Jesus speaking now, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened up the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always, always ask God's blessing on the reading and on the hearing of his word. Now, we... Uh, weren't able to talk about what happened right before this at the beginning of Luke chapter 24. We read that traditional story of the women going to the tomb early on the Sunday morning and finding the stone rolled away and the tomb empty and their confusion. Angels spoke to them and said, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. They went off to tell the 11 who thought what they were saying was nonsense. And Peter in Luke 24, 12 gets up and runs to the tomb. Bending over, he sees the, strip, the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened, even though Jesus has told them repeatedly more than once that he was going to Jerusalem, he was going to be crucified, and he was going to rise again. They still didn't understand that he could be alive. They couldn't wrap their minds around that. I wish we had time to talk about 
that a little bit more, but we need to move on. Because after Peter leaves the empty tomb wondering what happened, Luke changes the scene for us, and we begin to find ourselves on the Emmaus Road with two followers of Jesus who are traveling there. We just saw that the village of Emmaus was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And as they walk, Jesus himself, the resurrected Jesus, comes and begins to walk among them, although they were kept from recognizing him. And he asked them, like we just read, what are you talking about? And they're, they're dumbstruck by the question. They can't imagine anyone who's not talking about the same thing they're talking about, all the events that have just happened in and around Jerusalem related to Jesus. But he presses them, and finally they say, we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. And they go on to explain all the bad things that are happening, that have happened, and they're downcast, and they're broken, and on and on and on. We read about that in verse 19 through 24. And in response... Jesus does the most amazing thing. As he walks with them, he begins to teach them everything the scriptures say about him. Now, I, I wish, and I'm sure you as well, that we had the specifics of what he told them. We don't. And we don't know how long they talked and we don't have time tonight to go into great detail. But as I think about that, I can just imagine Jesus as he walked down the road with them going all the way back to the book of Genesis in the third chapter and focusing on verse 15 where we find the very first prophecy about a coming Messiah. It says, in essence, that when the Messiah comes, one day Satan will hurt him, but in the end he will crush Satan. The latter part of verse 15 in Genesis 3 says, literally, you will strike his heel, Satan, you will strike his heel, the Messiah, but he will crush your head. And from there, he could have stayed in the book of Genesis and gone to Genesis chapter 22. That's where my mind goes. And that great story about how one day God told a man named Abraham to take his son, his only son, Isaac, that he waited years and years and years for and sacrifice him. And the amazing thing about the story is that Abraham was willing to do that. He takes Isaac to the place God has directed him, and he's tied him on the altar, and he's ready to take his life when all of a sudden God stops his hand. And Genesis chapter 22 and verse 13 says, Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. And so Abraham took the ram and sacrificed the ram instead of his son. And Genesis 22:14 goes on to say, so Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. And friends, you know, that's exactly what God did with Jesus. That was a typical prophecy of what God would one day do with Jesus because Jesus was a substitute. God sent him as a substitute for you and for me because when he died on the cross, he took our place and he was punished for our sin. From there, I can imagine Jesus going to the book of Exodus, a passage that these two men as Jews would have been so familiar with. And talking about that story about how God rescued the Israelites, his children, from the 10th plague that he sent on the land of Egypt to try to get Pharaoh to relent and let his people go. It was the death of the firstborn. We talked about this last week when we talked about the triumphal entry because Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. Remember, God told the Israelites, his children, in advance of that plague to sacrifice a spotless lamb and then spread the blood of the lamb on the door frames of their homes so that when the Lord passed by, the Israelite families would be spared the death that was coming. And so the Israelites literally 
We're saved by the blood of the lamb. Do you remember that great passage in John chapter one and verse 29? When Jesus was about to begin his earthly ministry and John the Baptist pointed his finger at Jesus and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because just like the Israelites were saved by the blood of the lamb, you and I are saved by the blood of the lamb as well. And then I can imagine Jesus going to Psalm 22, a powerful messianic prophetic psalm that begins with the very words that Jesus spoke from the cross. It begins like this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And from there, he could have walked those two men through the entire psalm because as you read through Psalm 22, you see several unmistakable references to the reality of the cross and what Jesus had just experienced just two days earlier. In my mind, I see him going to Isaiah chapter 7 next and verse 14 where we read, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And we'll call him Emmanuel. And we're reminded that Jesus' birth was unlike any other birth. Because his mother Mary had not had physical intimacy with another man. But what was in her was from the Holy Spirit. And she gave birth to the Son of God. He could have stayed in the book of Isaiah and gone to chapter 53. Another powerful messianic prophecy that pointed to Jesus in verses 3 through 6, we read, He was despised and rejected by, man, by men, rather, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Surely he took up our infirmities, carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all on him or has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How about imagining him going from there to Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And folks, Jesus just fulfilled the reality of that prophecy, not but a handful of days before this moment. Now, I could go on and on and on, but I'll stop right there. Even though those references don't even scratch, and I'm not just using the phrase, they don't even scratch the surface of all the Bible says in prophecy about the coming of Jesus and all that it says about everything that Jesus has just experienced. Now, before they finish, I'm sure because there was so much to talk about, they reached their destination. And we saw that the two men urged Jesus to come inside, even though he acted like he wanted to go on. And when they're inside sitting at a table, Jesus blesses the bread and he breaks the bread. And the text tells us in that moment, can you imagine what this must have been like? In that moment, their eyes were opened and they recognized Jesus. And then the most unusual thing happens. I've always been fascinated by this verse. The most unusual thing happens and Jesus disappears. How do you think you would respond? If, Jesus, if anybody disappeared right in front of your eyes, how did they respond? What did they say? 
wow, I've never seen anyone disappear before. <laughs> or, wow, wasn't it cool to see Jesus in his resurrected and glorified body? That's not what they said. They said in verse 32, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? You see, these men knew Jesus. And so I think, as I think about that, I imagine that up to this point, their experience with, with Jesus would have been that they first heard about him and then they went to find him and then they listened to, them, to him and then they interacted with him and then they had a personal relationship with him. That's obvious by the way they referred to their relationship with the 11 when they were telling Jesus about all that had just happened in Jerusalem, including what had happened that very morning. But even with that knowledge of Jesus, it wasn't until he opened their minds to the scriptures and the truth that the scriptures reveal about Jesus, the truth that God had a plan in place for Jesus to do exactly what Jesus said he would do from the very beginning of time. It wasn't until then when they really understood the reality of who he was. It was the scriptures that caused their hearts to burn. Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. They weren't describing an emotional experience because their hearts were stirred. We know what that's like. I know what that's like. I can watch television. I can, there can be a commercial come on television that stirs my hearts and I'm reaching for the Kleenex. Their hearts were stirred. Their hearts were burning because that's what happens when the truth of God's word impacts your heart with a confirmation that God is who he says he is, that God is alive, that God is at work, that God can be trusted, that God has a plan for every circumstance of your life because God, at the end of the day, loves you more than any of us can ever imagine. So these men go from being downcast in Luke 24 and verse 17 to jumping up from the table, forget about dinner, and running all the way back to Jerusalem to say it is true. It is true. We've seen the Lord in verse 34. What made the difference? It was the confirming truth of God's word that Jesus shared with them as they walked down the road. That's why the study of the scriptures is so important. If you're a believer, but you never open your Bible, you never read it, you never meditate upon it, you never make it a part of your life by placing it in your heart, that's such a terrible mistake. That's why we are a church that puts such a high value on studying the Bible. We always have and we always will because the Bible points us to the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. He died on the cross, was buried in the tomb, and on the third day he rose from the dead, and he is our only hope. Somebody should say amen to that. And while there may be times, and listen, we've lived through those times over the past 12 to 14 months. While there may be times when it's hard to hang on to that hope, that's exactly the experience that these two disciples were having on that road before Jesus joined them. We find strength and our hope is solidified when we trust the immutable, unchanging truth of God's word and what it tells us about God and the promises that he makes to us because God never breaks his promises. 
I want you to look with me at a single verse on the screen, and I want uh, to read it to you. It's a great verse, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. Peter says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's such a good verse. We'll read it again, but this time, join me. I want to hear your voices. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead reminds us in a powerful way, as I just said, every single thing that God promises us, everything that he has promised us in his word, even when it's hard for us to see, even when it's hard for us to understand, is absolutely true. That's what those two disciples learned in that post-resurrection appearance with Jesus. They had, even though they were downcast, they had everything they needed to know that Jesus was alive, revealed in the truth of God's word. I like the way New Testament scholar N.T. Wright describes those two men who were on that Emmaus road. He says they were like two men watching for the sun to rise, only they were looking in the wrong direction. And they couldn't see it. They couldn't see it rise. But eventually, they knew that the sun had risen because they were surrounded by the light and the warmth that it produced. Friends, that's what the truth of God's word does for us. Even when we can't see what we're looking for, what we're hoping for, and we're confused, the truth of God's word is the confirmation that we need to know that God can be trusted in all things. It reminds us that there's always hope for tomorrow. It might be that you're here tonight and you find yourself, in a sense, walking the Emmaus Road because you've experienced some of the realities of what life can be like in a sinful, fallen world, some of the harsh realities, some of the disappointing realities, some of the hurtful, frightening realities of what life can be like in this sinful, fallen world. And maybe they've taken you by surprise and you just just don't even know what to think. Maybe things haven't gone the way you thought they would, and you're wondering what God is doing. You're wondering if God is even doing anything at all. Here's my encouragement to you. Trust in the truth of God's word. Trust in the promises of God's word. Trust in what you've learned in the past. Hold on to it for the future. When we came together for Easter services last year, and we couldn't meet together in person. Everything was online. And I remember preparing a Good Friday message last year that I recorded out here next to the Connection Cafe. And I crafted that message in part around a quote from a man named Joseph Bailey in a book he wrote called A View from a Hearse. Joseph Bailey was a man who was intimately acquainted with the tragedies of life. And in the book, he said this, don't forget in the darkness what you have learned in the light. Don't forget in the darkness. In the darkness of the one that you thought was the hope of Israel who is now seemingly dead and no longer alive, no longer a factor. Don't forget in the darkness what you learned in the light. When I got up this morning, I got up early because I went to play golf early this morning. I went into my living room and I sat down in the place I always sit to do my morning devotional, my time alone with God, and I began to read, and this was the verse that was the foundation of my morning devotion. I thought it was so appropriate. 
Paul wrote these words in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 18. He says, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. Jesus crucified on a cross. Jesus giving up his life, saying it is finished. Jesus taken down from a cross, his body prepared for burial and placed in a tomb. What is unseen is temporary, Paul says. Or excuse me, what is seen is temporary, Paul says, but what is unseen is eternal. I want you to pray with me. Father, thank you so much for this time to just talk about this familiar story of this post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. And I pray that you would really strengthen our hearts uh, tonight with the knowledge that we can trust every word that you say, every word that you have spoken, every word that you have breathed into your word, the Bible. And that we can find the strength and we can find the hope and we can find the meaning and we can find the confidence in those words no matter what may face us because we know that you are a trustworthy God. In fact, the Bible says about you that it's impossible for you to lie. And we thank you that Jesus came alongside those disciples and assured them that everything they heard was absolutely true. Help all of us to find that same assurance through the unchanging word of God. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.